0: Luke chapter 5. Today, our concentration will be the passage that Eddie just read for us, verses 27 to 32. Luke 5, 27 to 32. We have been focusing intently. I hope that your heart has been intent and earnest as we've gone through. We have been focusing intently on the words of Jesus, the way that Jesus speaks the way that he commands. He has been speaking in these two chapters and his word, we have seen, carries all the weight of the word of God. For his word is the word of God. His mouth is the mouth of God as his heart is the heart of God as he is himself the son of God the image of the invisible God, equal in power and glory to the Father in heaven. So, he says, and his word does, he commands, and nothing in these chapters, nothing, period, resists the authority of Jesus Christ. Demons, and fevers, and leprosy, and paralysis, and guilt... Flee at the word of jesus that 's what we 've seen in these two chapters, and now, in this passage before us, Jesus speaks again, and he has all the authority of the Son of Man. I need to talk more about that Son of Man passage in Daniel chapter seven, and the The, the title Son of Man was first used by Luke in the passage that we covered last week. I didn't have time to really unpack it. But we will. We'll get to that. But having all the authority of the Son of Man, as He is described in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Jesus commands. And today we see Him command again. He speaks His word to this wretch, to this tax collector, this filthy, traitorous thief. And He commands him, follow me. And the weight of Jesus' word carries all the authority in Levi's heart as the weight of the word of God carried into the void in the beginning when God spoke, let there be. The weight of Jesus' word here, follow me, carries all the weight of the word of God as it carried into the bones of the paralytic when Jesus spoke the word of healing. It's the same with Levi. It's no different. And he rises from his tax booth and follows after Christ just as the paralytic rose up off the floor at the Word of Jesus. And I am praying that the Word of God would carry such weight into your heart. Some of you I am praying for more earnestly and urgently than in a normal season. Because some are discouraged. Some are tempted. And some have hearts growing cold. And I pray that the word of God would slam into your heart as it slammed into the heart of Levi the tax collector and all of his resistance was overcome. Let's read this passage, all right? Luke 5, verses 27 to 32, and then we will pray. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would attend in these moments the preaching of Your Word. I pray that You would fill me with Your Spirit, Father, that I would have no ambition but Your Your glory and Your honor, Your exaltation and Your people's good, their encouragement, their looking to You and depending on You and rising up from wherever they are, leaving everything behind and following after Jesus. And I pray, Father, that rising up as we hear the word of Christ calling to us, I pray that all of our resistance would be overcome so that no one is left where they are in the tax booth. I pray, Father, that we would all come after Christ. So may you pour out your Spirit because, Father, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, all of our resistance will stay in place. All of our resistance, in fact, will grow. Our hearts will further harden apart from your gracious, merciful work in us. So for that we plead, and we plead boldly because we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. As you look upon Jesus in Matthew Luke rather 5:27 to 32 what does it do to your heart to lay the eyes of faith on him who is the image of the invisible God what does it do to your heart to see him to see in Jesus into the heart of God I know that we know the story we can become, in a sense, acclimated to the Scriptures in a way that we become numb to the Word of God. We become desensitized to the Word of God. I mean, you, you get on social media, I wasn't really planning on saying this, but you get on something like social media, and you see all of these you know, YouTube clips being posted and, and shared and so on, and sometimes you see the most sensational headlines. It's called clickbait. And the promise of the headline is, the the title is, you know, if you watch this thing, you're going to see something that is absolutely amazing, that will absolutely blow you away. And when you click on the link, it always falls short of the promise. I mean, it might be slightly amusing or whatever. But I was reading someone recently who said, you know, all of this clickbait is killing our souls. Because if everything is amazing, nothing is and it's so easy for us to become even desensitized to the glory of god in christ in luke 5:27 to 32 because we are inundating ourselves we are gorging ourselves on the most trivial nonsense on cat videos and whatever you know and it's just it's it's not right It's not right. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with watching a cat video, but to gorge ourselves on this stuff. And if you're not online, I don't know why, but cat videos and cat pictures and so on are are all the rage. I don't get it. But anyway, that's what it is. What does it do to your heart to lay the eyes of faith on the one who is the image of the invisible God? To hear Him speak the word of God and to realize that this one, the promised one, the son of man, come at long last is making wretches his own. Who would have thought he is making wretches his own? And I'll lay that out. I'll tell you why this man is such a a filthy, miserable wretch that he is. But this is what Jesus does. This is the heart of God. And it should lead our hearts to worship, to worship our God because He has made us His own by sending His Son to come to this place to live for us and to die for us upon the cross of Calvary. So I want to know what's your response to Jesus? How do you, does your heart respond? Do you reject Him still like the Nazarenes of His, his hometown? Or like the Pharisees are doing as we read? Does your heart reject Him still? Or are you like one of the the thousands of Galileans who just want to exploit Him for His gifts, for the good things He can add to your life? Or are you like these few who hear the call of Christ and find Him to be irresistible? Do you find Jesus irresistible or does your heart resist Him still? Verse 27 again. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. This word that Jesus saw this man is not a light word. It's not how we would typically think of seeing, like a passing glance or just that he notices him. In fact, if this had been you, if you had seen this tax collector... And I had asked you a week later, hey, do you remember that tax collector you saw? You wouldn't get a dumb look on your face. You wouldn't be like, ah, racking your brain. You would know immediately, yeah, I saw him. I remember him very well. And you would have all of these thoughts about what you had observed. Because this word for saw speaks of a very deliberate, attentive, considerate scene that weighs whatever is seen. So Jesus is carefully observing him. He is paying close attention to him and he is weighing this individual. And what he sees is a man who is a wretched sinner. Do you know what a Jewish tax collector was? Now, you probably recall that Israel in these days is not autonomous and free, independent, and so on. They are under the Roman thumb, or put it another way, uh, the Roman foot is on the Jewish neck. They are captive, in a sense. They have certain freedoms, of course, but all within the, the boundaries that the Roman Empire had laid. So Rome, in order to um, continue to grow the empire, they needed money, and so they would sell a tax district to the highest bidder. Whoever, you know, offered the most would have the opportunity to collect Roman taxes for that particular district. So, from 9 to 5, Levi is enforcing Roman taxation and exploiting his neighbors for whatever extra that his heart desires because Rome allowed its tax collectors to do that. They could... You know, set the taxes so high and it didn't matter. And and you think about this, Levi paid good money for this job, for this opportunity. Now, I don't think that we, we get how awful this is. So let me put it in these terms. Imagine that that Russia, when it was known as the Soviet Union, the Communist Soviet Union during the Cold War... Imagine that the Soviet Union had attacked the United States with the full power of its nuclear arsenal and prevailed over the United States. And the United States surrendered. I know this is a horrible thing. You don't want to even think about this on 4th of July weekend of all weekends, right? But let's just say that the Communist Soviet Union is the occupying force in the United States. And... What rules they lay down, we have to follow, disobey at the risk of death. Now, let's also imagine that there are a good number of American citizens without an ounce of patriotism in their heart that bid for the job of collecting taxes from the American populace. So they are no, they are nothing less than traitors to their country paying for this opportunity to tax the American citizenry and also to exploit their fellow Americans of whatever their heart desires. That's Levi. That's Levi. But worse, because he is a traitor to God's covenant people. So I think that gives you an idea that everybody loaths this man. Everybody despises him on every level of society. The, the, m- m- most of the rich and all of the poor, religious and irreligious, all despise him. But Jesus does not loathe him. He is despised on every level of Jewish society, but not in the highest heaven. For God in eternity set his love His covenant love on this man. And now Christ comes to him and calls him. Not because this man has so much great potential, but because this is the grace of God. Jesus says to him, follow me. It's not an invitation. He's not just gauging Levi's interest. He's not just, you know, seeing if Levi would like to, or if he'd be available, or anything like that. He commands him. He lays the summons of God's love upon Levi's life. And right then and there, Levi is done with the industry of sin. It has lined his pockets pretty well. And every day, his heart has grown further calloused to the commandments of God. And yet with one look and two words, the Son of Man breaks through and seizes hold of His life, takes over. And Christ, can you imagine what this man thinks? Christ would have Him? Even Him? Then He will have Christ. And it says that immediately... He rises up. He leaves everything behind to follow after Jesus. I want to read that again. It says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi's heart, in this one sense, Levi's heart, in, in one sense, is no different than the demon and the fever and the fish. These are the miracles that we have gone over these last couple of chapters. His heart is no different than the paralysis or the leprosy. The word of Jesus prevails over all resistance. Charles Wesley wrote in a classic hymn that I don't know how many of us know, but I believe Karen knows it and we need to, to start to, to sing it. But there's one verse. Charles Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening and um, a raising ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Who knows those lines? Jerry? Karen? Well, we're going to learn that sooner or later. You see what's going on here? The God who spoke, let there be light into the primordial darkness, is shining the light of the glory of His Son into Levi's dark heart. And now, wretched Levi sees. And who does he see before him? Not a man that he wants to run from and hide from, not a man that he wants to exploit. He sees the glory of God. And whatever price that he has to pay personally, Levi is going to get up, he's going to leave it all behind, and he is going to follow after Jesus because his heart has been won. Now a question, an important question at this point. Does Levi have a will of his own? Does he have a choice of whether he will follow Jesus or not. Of course he has a choice. But listen, when Christ issues his call, and God sends his light in, and the Spirit prevails over his resistance, does the sinner still have a choice to follow Jesus or not? He does, but he will always choose like Levi. He will rise, he will leave everything behind, and he will follow after Christ because his heart has been won. His affections have been won. They have come to life to God in Jesus and he will follow. The Bible speaks of a general call of the gospel to all people. And then it speaks of the effectual, the effective call. You can think of the one as the gospel invitation and the other as a gospel summons. And so the Bible says in one place, many are called, but few are chosen. And that call is speaking of that general call that goes out to all people regardless. But the Bible also refers to those who come as the called. That's the effectual call. So Levi now joins the company of those whom the Bible calls the called. Romans 8. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. I, I hope, I pray that you don't say, No, it can't be. No way it is. Because uh, who are we, the miserable wretches that God would call us to himself with that summons that overcomes all the resistance, all the pride, and all the guilt that we have in our hearts? The Bible also says in in Corinthians, not many mighty, not many noble are called, right? So there's a distinction and a very clear one between the general gospel call to all and that effectual call that will overcome all resistance. Charles Wesley again. Uh, Jerry gave me a a hymn book a while back and I read this hymn for the first time the other day and I thought, man, this this is exactly what we're talking about here. Bound down with twice ten thousand ties, yet let me hear thy call, my soul in confidence shall rise, shall rise and break through all. Bound down with twice ten thousand ties, holding me captive, holding me down, yet let me hear thy call, My soul in confidence shall rise, shall rise and break through all. Now, don't you know this is who you are, Levi? You know it, right? Haven't you seen enough darkness in your heart to know that if you had whatever his backstory was, you would be in the same place? Your heart would be just as warped and just as disfigured and you would walk with the same moral limp as Levi. The thing is, by by the grace of God, you were planted in a different field, laid with different minds, or different traps and snares. But if you had walked his same field, laid with the same minds, your life would look just the same, just as disfigured, just as warped. And by nature, of course, it is... We are all the same disfigured and warped and broken and dead in our sin. So this is you. This is me. This is who we are. We are the miserable wretches. And God looked upon us with that attentive love and called us to Himself through the gospel of His Son. It says, and Levi made him, verse 29, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Do you know what grace God has shown you? The more you know this grace, the more you will sing it. Those who see the grace will sing the grace. There's going to be a celebration of salvation and a celebration of the Savior. And this is just the most natural thing. It is one of those, well, duh, moments in the Scriptures. Of course the man is going to throw a party. The miseries and the pleasures of sin are behind him and Jesus holds him fast with love. Of course he is going to celebrate the Savior. There have uh, been a bunch of you lately who have shared good news that you have heard from the doctor. You had these symptoms that could have um, been, well, symptoms of serious something seriously, physically wrong with you. And you did further testing. And the doctor said, no, it's not that. It's this. And this is something that we can treat. And you've been happy and you've shared the news with me. And my thought is, whenever I'm concerned about somebody and, and, you know, admittedly a little bit stressed over what it could be, when I hear the good news, I'm like, okay, when are we going to have the party? You know, let's celebrate. God has been good. God has answered our prayers. It's the most natural thing in the world to celebrate the good news. Do you know what grace is yours? Do you know where you were headed? Do you know what you have been forgiven? Do you know the intervention of God's mercy? How dare we, having received so great salvation, offer from our hearts so little praise? How can our hearts... Mumble praise. There are different reasons for our voices perhaps to mumble a song. You never know what somebody has gone through the day before, what stress and discouragement, what even depression they may be feeling that keeps their song muted. But our hearts, how can our hearts just mumble praise to God in light of this so great salvation. Now, another natural response from Levi is not only the celebration, but he's going to invite people. If if you have received a treatment for a disease that you know others also have, or you have been rescued from a situation that you know others also need rescuing from, you're going to sing the praises of the one who treated you, you're going to sing the praises of the rescuer and you're going to do it in the vicinity of those who need the same. And it would be crazy not to. That's what Levi does. He brings the only friends that he has left in the world, all his tax collecting buddies. And he says, you need what I've got. And so who knows how many tax collectors left the trade on this day. But the Pharisees and their scribes who had turned on Jesus when he extended forgiveness to the paralytic are on hand here as well. And their grumbling only grows. They grumbled at Jesus' disciples, it says in verse 30, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a big it was a big deal to eat a meal with someone. That was it spoke of intimacy, acceptance, and, and this this fellowship. So it was a big deal that they would see Jesus eating with these wretches. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, what does it do to your heart to see into the heart of God and knowing this is who He sends Jesus for? He comes for the wretches, He comes for the perverted. He comes for the miserable. He comes for the thieves. He comes for not only them, but He comes for the Pharisee too. He comes for the hypocrite. And He comes for the self-righteous. He comes for all and He calls to all. But knowing who you are, you yourself knowing who you are, what does it do to your heart? to hear that Jesus comes for sinners, to call them to repentance. This is the first of three times in Luke's Gospel that we're going to see these Pharisees at odds with Jesus over tax collectors. First of three times that they're going to have this conflict. So who are these Pharisees? Um, let me just keep it brief. The Pharisees are these lay people who are leaders in religious life in Israel who pride themselves on keeping their noses clean by law and man-made tradition. And the tax collectors are those who wallow up to their necks in the world, in the moral filth of the world. Now, let's think about this. If the portrait of sin is in fact a mirror, in whose life, in whose character do you see your reflection? If the portrait of sin is a mirror, and it is, in whose life, Pharisee or tax collector, do you see your reflection? Such is the power of sin's deception. And such is our complicity with sin that I find in my own heart that the roots of both go down deep and are tangled together. And I think that if you know yourself and you will be honest, that you would say the same. That you see yourself, your reflection, In both of these, those who pride themselves on keeping their noses clean, and those who like to wallow in the world every once in a while. Now let's apply this to our context, okay? I mean, how can we not? The Pharisaical heart has no heart whatsoever for the tax collector. And today's Pharisees are much the same as they were in the past they can't stand a certain kind of person in their house. That's a Pharisee. They can tolerate a certain kind of sin. They might even be able to wink at a certain kind of sin. But so dark a shade or such a dark perversion or whatever, then they cannot abide it. They can't stand it. And the church is filled with Pharisees that can abide. I'm going to pick on something that's in our attention today. They can abide a certain shade of sexual immorality. And others, they can't. But here's the thing. The lines that these Pharisees draw are not biblical lines. They aren't biblical lines. So let's talk about what's going on in our world today. The United States, for its beginning, I think, is utterly unique in human history for the beginning of the nation. And what started, the principles upon which the nation was founded are something to cherish, something for you to uphold and something for you to protect. You do well to protect it. In fact, you love your neighbor to protect those principles, because those principles are good for the world. But I want you to remember something, American citizen. We are strangers in this world, and pilgrims. We are exiles, not yet home. And the United States is not that kingdom that cannot be shaken. The United States is not that kingdom which cannot be shaken. So it's the 4th of July weekend and all across this country there are millions upon millions and don't think that the media is just necessarily blowing up the numbers because it's true. There are scores of millions of people who are celebrating the newfound so-called freedom for same-sex marriage. The tax collectors are reveling in their sin, and they are flaunting it. But I want to ask you, do you hate them? Do you hate them for it? Well, I don't hate them for it, but I don't really have love in my heart for them. Then you hate them. Those who have no love in their hearts for the Levites, the tax collectors... For those who are flaunting their sin, those who have no love in their heart for them are the Pharisees. And that's plain and simple, and that is clear from the Word of God. I, I want to say something, because I know how uh, just about all of you, except if you're maybe really young, uh, grew up. When I was a, a kid in the 80s, and a, a teenager in the early 90s and mid-90s, Oh man, the, the jokes were cruel. There were, the insults, you just, you, people popped off all the time. And there were all kinds of insults going back and forth. And if, I mean, that's what it was. That's the way the culture was. And the church participated. Brothers and sisters in Christ participated. And as far as we ever participated, we were wrong. We were wrong. And I also want you to know something, all of you. If you spew any kind of cruel joke or anything, mm, what's the right word, vitriolic, any hatred, I know that not everybody here would be aware of this, maybe not even most, but there would be people in this church family who take it very, very personally. Not that they would personally identify themselves as being same-sex oriented by no means. But they have loved ones who do. And if we speak cruelty, those who are pleading for the souls of their loved ones are hurt by it. And there is a gap that widens between the insulter and the one who is pleading for their loved one's soul and who loves them unto death. So no more. If we are guilty, no more. Because it is wrong. It is pharisaical. It is dead wrong. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which would edify and build up those who hear. We cannot be so cruel and insulting and love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, there's another side to this. There are many here, not here, I mean in the church. There are many in the church today who, claiming to follow Jesus who are actually on the opposite side of this. And they celebrate the tax collector life. They tell the tax collector, do what you do. Do whatever makes you happy. And those who are waving the rainbow flag for this so-called freedom are celebrating... The institutionalization of rebellion against God. They are celebrating perversion. They are celebrating the institutionalization of the destruction of sinners. The United States has spoken that this is right. That this must be protected. That this is sanctimonious. That this is to be cherished. And this is to be honored. And those who are waving that flag are celebrating rebellion against God. Listen, Jesus came to make the sick well. He says He came to call the sinner to repentance. And so those Christians who refuse to make the biblical judgment, let me say something quickly. I mentioned this a week ago. That it may very well be judgmental to just point out the sin, to merely point out the sin. That may very well be the kind of judgmentalism that Matthew 7.1 forbids. But to preach repentance is not judgmentalism. That is the mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is love. So those Christians who refuse to make the biblical judgment and call a spade a spade, call a sin a sin, but applaud the sinner in their newfound so-called freedom, are nothing but the blind leading the blind. Jesus loves that tax collector as he is. But it is no love for him to leave him there. It is certainly not love to applaud him and say, you go with your tax collecting. It's just hastening on that individual to a, a destruction. See, the Pharisee approach is he doesn't want to touch that tax collector with a 10-foot pole. The tax collector or those who celebrate the tax collecting life would pat them on the back. One would hasten them onto hell and the other is just smoothing the way. Neither way is the way of Christ. Listen, Levi cannot follow Jesus and continue collecting for Rome. He must leave everything behind. So we have two views of sinners on opposite ends of the spectrum. Again, the Pharisee won't touch him with a 10-foot pole, and of course, the other pats him on the back and applauds his choices. But there is another way. It is not an easier way. It is not. But it is the narrow way. And many have died for this way. The way of Christ is to die for what is right and to die for who is wrong. The way of Christ is to speak the truth. The truth of God in the love of God. And as soon as we lose either one of those, we are not going the way of Christ. And we are falling into one of those two errors. Let's speak the truth in love. Now, if you were surprised by the Supreme Court ruling of last week, you you weren't paying attention. Because that wave has been heading to American shores for decades. Trace it back to the 1960s and the sexual revolution. Trace it back to, to feminism and the blurring of gender lines. Of course, trace it back even further than that to Charles Darwin's work on evolution. That wave crashed last week, but it was cresting for even, it was cresting for much longer than that. How was the evangelical voice so easily tuned out? And it was. It was muted. People just turned it off. Listen, the church has been hypocritical on this. The church has been so inconsistent. You cannot pick which shade of sexual immorality that you will mourn. You cannot pick which shade of sexual immorality you will denounce. So Christians who do not denounce same-sex marriage but tolerate cohabitation and unbiblical divorce are being terribly inconsistent and being hypocritical. And for years, both have been rampant in the church and the church has turned a blind eye parents have turned a blind eye grandparents have turned a blind eye you know one of the the worst sins uh, i say worst sins one of the one of the terrible sins that we see in the lives of many godly men that marked them that that marred them was the passivity of their approach to their children like david and samuel and so on they would not correct their children they would not say this is wrong they wouldn't Now, I'm not telling you to stop loving your child or anything like that. I'm telling you to lay your life down as Christ laid His life down. Lay your life down for what is right and lay down your life for who is wrong. It will not be easy. That is the way of Christ. Jesus says, follow me. How you love sinners is a clear sign whether you are following the Jesus of the Bible or not. How you love, how you relate to sinners. Because if the Jesus that you follow doesn't love the tax collectors, you are not in fact following Jesus. If the Jesus that you follow does not preach repentance, you are not following Jesus. The Jesus of the scriptures loves the tax collector but will not leave him where he is. He calls him to repentance. We cannot love and follow Jesus if we have a different approach. The thing is, we want to reduce Jesus, and Jesus is irreducible. We want to remake Jesus, and he will not be remade. We want to cut out parts of Jesus, but it can't be done, because as soon as you reduce the irreducible Christ, You don't have Christ. You have a graven image. You have an idol. Jesus made in the image of tradition or the way of the world as it is right now. Jesus made in our own image. We must follow this Jesus who loves the tax collector unto death and calls him repentance. That's the Christ we follow. So I'll ask you what I asked you at the beginning. What does it do to your heart to see the image of the invisible God, to lay the eyes of faith upon him, to hear his word and to see into his heart and find out that this is the heart of God? Would you change him Would you reduce him to less than he is? Or do you find this Jesus to be irresistible? Does your heart rise to meet him? Will you follow no matter what the cost? Let's pray. Father, if we would know ourselves by your word, we would know that this is us. We we are the Pharisee looking down upon the sinner and scorning him. But we're also the tax collector, just wallowing in the sins that we prefer. Father, I pray that we would hear the the call of the Lord Jesus, our righteous, our holy, and our merciful Savior, who gave up his life upon the cross that we might live, I pray that those who are here would hear His call. Follow me. And we would look at every other choice. And we would reject them. We would turn away from them. And we would only follow Jesus. Not a Jesus that we would cut up and repaste in the image we want, but we would follow the Jesus that you have sent, the Jesus of your word, who yet lives and reigns in heaven, and is coming again to save all of those who follow. May we follow faithfully. Help us, sustain us, keep us unto glory. In Jesus' name I pray.